welcome captives and captive friends to episode 20 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Cutra. To subscribe for free to the pod and get the latest episodes downloaded straight to your device, just search for Global Captive Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. My latest guest co-host is Mr. EB himself, Mark Cook, Senior Director at Willis Towers Watson here in London. Mark, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, Richard. Well, we'll get into it in just a second. And of course, this episode is going to have a very strong employee benefits focus as we drill deep into Mark's big EB brain. But we also have a couple of other recognisable names to hear from. Our captive owner interview is with Phil Clark, Director of Insurance at the Vodafone Group, which is a really sophisticated and quite unique captive owner and in part two we'll hear from one of mark's former colleagues as well we'll hear from Anne-Marie Toll who's now global captive solutions leader at Highland and she is the latest visitor to Karen's captive corner but Mark it's great to finally uh, have you on the pod I know you you've got quite the hectic schedule and we have been in negotiations for some time to uh, to fit this in before the end of the year Going back to episode eight, we did touch on employee benefits, including a really fascinating interview with Bill Fitzpatrick of DHL, who I know you know well, so I'm excited to take the subject on further. Now, the idea to pull international employee benefits and ultimately write it through a captive has been around for about 50 years, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but the approach and strategy has certainly evolved in that time. So could you briefly outline how EB captive strategies have evolved from multinational pooling through to global underwriting and, and captive-backed uh, global underwriting that we have today. So just to correct Richard's uh, first comment, <laughs> I was bottom of the barrel, just being asked, <laughs> filling in for someone. Um, EB's, EB's my, my area. I think no to, 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 to push back on what you said. 50 years, yes. If I look back, 50s, the 1950s is where companies started and this was actually u.s companies started to think about globalizing their their employee benefit delivery and financing was an area they looked at and this is and this was pushed by the big the big companies like fords etc and it was reactions of john hancock and people like met and swiss life to a degree in europe of, of trying to put in a global program what that meant on eb was was yeah so the 50s was the start of multinational pooling captives were not around there for eb in any means but maybe a little bit of stop loss, cat cover, that sort of thing. Um, we cast our minds to the 90s. This is when we started to think about non-US EB risk to captive. You mentioned Bill, so DHL, Deutsche Post, one of the first, Alcatel, AZ, that sort of thing in the, in the 90s. If you look for the US piece, that came in the 2000s with ADM, Columbia Energy, pioneering there more complex there's stuff to do and then if you cast your mind closer to now retiree medical pensions started to filter into the discussion around captive use in sort of 2010 onwards so captive use is really been around for 20-25 years for EB from a global perspective pooling has been around and continues to be around and will be around for the foreseeable future in, in different guises you mentioned underwriting. Um, so this global underwriting program has come about, was invented nearly 10 years ago. Okay. A couple of Dutch companies um, started putting it in place. They, they continue with it. But it's really hit the market in the last two to three years, product-wise, market 
uh, providers being willing to write it and, and it's been a big push. So pooling, captive, underwriting. And so what then, uh, for a layman like myself, what then is the difference between, what is the, the main characteristic differences of a multinational pooling structure and a global underwriting structure? Okay, great question. With a pooling structure, so pooling works on a method of giving back a profit share after a time period after year-end closure of report. That's what it is. I'm going to say the wrong word here, but passive. It's relatively passive. Many companies do this, Richard. And if you don't do it and you're, in, you're a multinational company or an international company in many jurisdictions, you don't do it you're leaving money on the table with insurers. So basically you're taking a bit of their underwriting margin yeah. and you're taking as a dividend X number of months after year end. With a underwriting program, you're shifting that timing of a, of a, a, a profit share to upfront. So, that you, so you're a multinational company, you give a portfolio of business to, a, to a, an insurer, usually one insurer, and they take a view and that's, uh, of the price. Now, I actually challenge the fact that it's, it's not actually global underwriting. What the companies do on this, and there's many vendors in this market now, they locally underwrite, they take a view at the global on the price. So they do a deal on the price because, you, because you're giving them a portfolio. For that deal, they will give it a discount. Yeah. That's the difference. And so you're getting that up front. It's aggressive. You need to maintain and push um, a portfolio to that insurer to guarantee your discount, and it's usually multi-year. So then, is it fair to characterize global underwriting, or whatever you might want to call it, as being the more, and whether it's captive-backed or not, being the more sophisticated option? Is it, an, is it a step beyond multinational pooling? In both cases, yes. So in my view, so we have many, many multinational pools around the world, 2,000, 3,000, whatever that number is, many companies, and a pool would probably run itself. So we'd never advocate this, but in a way you don't really as a company need to throw much resource at it and the network can keep it going, minimal interventions. With the global underwriting piece, I'd say the, 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 the resource requirements step up a little bit. You need to think about what, what goes in, what goes out. The governance from a company perspective goes up because you need to guarantee this portfolio. There's a communications piece, an engagement piece, stakeholder piece, and so there's a stronger mandate generally with the underwriter programs and then if you step for captive then you're using your own insurance company there's a whole raft of things you need to think about decision making your own risk how do you manage that etc so it goes across the spectrum in terms of resource requirements go up well we're going to hear a lot more from from mark after the break but first it is time to hear from our captive owner this week phil clark director of insurance at vodafone group vodafone owns a very active and self-managed captive in malta writing a lot of lines but including employee benefits and phil did talk about eb with me but he began by providing some background on the captive So the captives are based in Malta. We set up in about 2005, 2006, and there were actually two captives to start with. There was one that looked after PNC, and there was a separate one that looked after EB. Um, eventually, they merged. They, they came together in 2016, so now we only have the one captive, which does about 18 lines of business wow. across. So it's quite quite a big program and that's to about 120 different entities across 30 different countries so it's a large program I guess the strategy is it's a funnel 
It's a way in which we collect all of our risk in one place. It's so that we can manage it in one place. Um, we keep quite a lot of the risk ourselves. Um, I always touch wood when I say this, and I say mm. we don't get many claims. Obviously, when we do this, quite large. Um, but why pass all of that premium that we collect from our local markets? Why pass it all to the external insurers? Let's keep some ourselves, keep some of the profit ourselves. What we then do is then reinsure the excess risk into the excess market, um, into the external market, and we do that as a portfolio. And because it's a portfolio of all of the countries, it's a, a more efficient way of transferring risk. So it works really well. And uh, just just quickly picking up on that on that point about having two separate captives and, and merging them into one, can you explain what the general rationale of that was? Simplicity, really. Um, we, we had the opportunity with um, Solvency 2 and the interpretation within Malta uh, that we had the ability to bring them together. Actually, what did happen on the EB captive, it was originally a direct writer, okay. um, and that's when we were doing life and disability. Then as the captive grew and we started taking on the medical, we realised it needed to become a reinsurance captive, and it changed. Um, and then with the interpretation of Solvency 2, we had the opportunity to bring the two together. So if you can have one set of board meetings, one audit committee, one investment committee, etc., rather than doubling up, it makes a lot of sense. And we also had um, the opportunity by bringing the EB and the PC, PNC together was a diversity, uh, and that Diverse, increasing the portfolio, wider diversity helps us with our solvency. And I think we actually saved about 19 million euros in our solvency requirement wow. just by bringing them together and having that, um, that expanded portfolio. Yeah, it's great to hear because we hear so often from captive consultants about the benefits of diversification and, and that impact on the, on the capital levels. And that's just a great example to, to highlight. So obviously, Big beast captive. You know, I often say Vodafone is probably one of the largest captives in, in Europe, I'd be comfortable saying. And it's quite a unique operation in Malta as well. And in fact, it's, it's generally uh, self-managed. So how does, how does that self-management work? It works really well. Um, we have a team of seven in Malta. I have a team of four in Paddington. The team in Malta work very closely with Marsh Malta. They help us with a lot of the, uh, the regulation. They give us a lot of good advice. They're close to the regulator. They've got a great relationship with them. Um, so that helps a lot. They also do a lot of the claims management for us, which is something that we just haven't got the resource to do. And they've got the expertise as well. We use their system because they're our compliance officer. They have to look at what we're doing. But then Pat and her finance team will, will work with them on all of the finance and all of the reporting. Uh, and then Kevin and the underwriting team again work with them on all of the new policies. So it works really well. Sounds like the best of, best of both worlds. You touched on the employee benefits already, and that's a line that the captive does write uh, and has written for some time. So why do you believe employee benefits is an attractive risk for uh, a captive to write? I, th- I think, as I said, we, we started off with the life and disability, um, which always had a good return. It can be lumpy. You can lose one year and you'll win another, but overall the returns were pretty good. Um, and there was fairly minimal claims involved, thankfully, for life and disability. We then brought on the medical, and, and again, we've, we've done okay there. Obviously, the returns aren't as great on medical, but a lot more premium, a lot more volume. I think what it's, what it's helped is twofold. One, obviously, we've captured all of that premium and profit within the captive, again, rather than passing it to external insurers. But also, particularly on the medical, it's helped us with our local markets. We've been able to have very broad policies. We've been able to flex them, move them around. And in a lot of the countries where, where we are, for example, Turkey or Egypt, etc., it's really important the medical schemes because the, the actual state 
offering isn't that strong and therefore what the company's offering is really important. It's really important to the employees, their family and for recruitment. So, But being able to offer a first class offer for medical and we've been able to do that because we've got the flexibility of the captive, that's really helped. So there are some of the positives and the benefits of, of having EB in the captive. What are some of those challenges both in implementation and on, on an ongoing basis as well? I guess on the implementation we had this idea that we were only going to have one or two fronters. Um, and you know we were just going to go to all of our local markets and we we're going to say right just pick from these three and that would be nice and consistent for us and it just didn't work we had situations where local markets were working already with insurers uh, where the insurers were providing in-house facilities a nurse or patient care was actually on site so when you get to those uh, those opcos they're not going to move so, so then we've gone from two, three to uh, quite a few more uh, insurance companies that we're working with, and we've had to uh, in order to get the premium and get the risk into the captive. And that means on an ongoing basis there's a lot more uh, insurers that we're working more with, different types of reports coming in, different borderos, and, and that does add some complexity to the programme. So I'm sure as Vodafone is seen as a, a leader, and you're seen as one of the leaders on the, on the EB side, I think, in the captive market, um, I'm sure that other multinationals have probably come to you, asked for advice. So what, what advice would you have for, for captive owners, captive owner considering going down the EB captive route for the first time? First and foremost, get HR on board. We tried to do it twice. And the first time when we set up the captive, as I said, we did the life and disability, that was fine. When we tried to get the medical in, it just wasn't working. And it was because we hadn't really got HR involved. The second time round, there was a guy called Jeff McKenzie who was brilliant in HR. And between the two of us, we, we, we worked on how we were going to get this into the markets. And we actually ended up getting a letter, and it was signed by our group CFO and our group HRD. Went to all of the opcos. Um, it said what the benefits of the captive were. And it basically said, look, we're going to try this for a few years and see how it goes. And we also agreed with group finance, which was key to this, um, that the, in the accounting, in our internal accounting, not the statutory accounts, but in the internal management accounting of Vodafone, if you use the EB captive, the premium that you paid was booked below EBIT in our management accounts. So basically for targets, it, came, it became free. So you, you had this kind of carrot and a stick. You know, the, the carrot was the, uh, the beneficial accounting and the stick was the letter from Group CFO and HRD saying we're going to do this. And that, that, then it worked. So you, you must get your HR on board and, um, and it does help them. You know, for us, it's, for our HR team, it's became the vehicle now that gives them uh, some transparency so they can view a lot of the programs which they weren't able to before um, helps them to standardise things if there's any variables out there that they're not happy with so it, it's definitely worked for both insurance and for HR Okay, we, we've touched there on, on wider parts of the organisation in regards to HR obviously obviously, the captive is, is, plays a key role with Vodafone has you know, 18 lines I think you said so a wide, you know, wide reach across the group so is it hard to justify continuing existing uh, use of a captive? Because you hear that all the time from captive owners that sometimes they have that struggle. Do even a company like Vodafone and, and you have that struggle? I think you've always got that problem. You've always got the problem of the captive and what does it do. Um, so you're always justifying it. F- from our point of view, um, it's viewed as a profit centre. 
and it, and it does generate a lot of savings for the group, which comes through as profit. And we also have a lot of consumer insurance, so we have a lot of handset insurance, and again, that does drive a profit. And in, the, in recent years, that profit has been used to send back as dividends. It's also actually been used to send back dividends which have been used for pension funding, which has gone round and actually come back into the captive as a new line of business. And because of that, we're seen as um, quite a key part of Vodafone we're still really small you know we're compared to Vodafone it's a tiny little thing but it's actually got some some value but in terms of justifying you've got to keep justifying every time I go for a renewal every time I ask for my reinsurance to be approved the first page is justifying the captive just so that the CFO and the treasurer understands why we have it what the benefits are so you, you never miss an opportunity to explain why you got your captive. And then, on, on I guess, on a related note, does that job become easier, do you think, in what we're seeing now? Definitely a hard new market. With my other hat on for a second, the Mick, you know, we're talking about it every day in the office. We've got members asking us for advice. We're hearing horror stories. Does the, does the job of justifying the existence of the captive become even easier, do you think? It should, but I'm not sure it does. So... I think the benefit of a captive clearly is it hardening market, you take more risk yourself, therefore you reduce the external cost. But it doesn't really work like that because you've got your own appetite. You've got some defined limits that your CFO, your main board are happy for the captive to take. So you're not really going to change those. So what then happens is essentially you're paying more for your reinsurance because of the hardening market. You're charging your opcos more because the premium. So really... A hardening market is, is still tough for a captive. The flexibility is there, and if your board understands and you take more risk, that's great. Um, and if they're really aligned, that's, that's good news. But actually, it can be quite a hard situation for a captive as well. You've touched a little bit on some of the tactics there, I think. But how do you expect to see captive owners in general react to the hardening market? And what, what are the options to, to deploy the captive? Is it as easy and simple as just increasing retentions? I think you've got to go out there and market why premiums gone up. You've got to point out to your opco that they've got a fantastic policy, probably with really low deductibles. You know, but they're not going to get in the external market. Um, they've also got probably terms and conditions which are much broader than they get elsewhere. So, if premiums are going up because you are not increasing the amount of retention within the captive, you just got to go out there and market more. Um, and then you're going to have to do it on the same on the back end. So, you're going to have to go to your CFO and say, "This is why the premiums gone up. This is why it's going to cost 10% more than than last year." And actually, we could take some more risk into the captive if you want make sure you have that discussion um, it may well come back no thank you i'm happy where we are but at least they've, they know they've got the flexibility and you can use the captive as that tool the global captive podcast is supported by rnq the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff RQ can provide a wide range of solutions and has A rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers, and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement, whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to RQ. Welcome back to GCP20, where I am joined by guest co-host Mark Cook of Willis Towers Watson. Mark, uh, I believe you, you know Phil Clark uh, quite well, don't you? I know Phil very well. Um, good guy, I think I've got to say that, haven't I? I think, um, I think we've, he's got a, a very uh, a nice captive model, uh, EBM pensions, and I think actually we put it in place for him. Of course, nice shameless plug there, Mark. <laughs> I, I like it a lot, I like it a lot. Um, 
Phil uh, touched there also on the uh, hardening market on the on the PNC side of things and how captive owners can react to it. I'm sure there's there's fewer people better placed than Phil to give some advice on that. But considering adding EB to a captive is such a large project and often can take a lot of internal work, which you already uh, touched upon to bring together different departments. Is there a risk that this transition to a hardening market uh, across traditional PNC lines will dis- kind of distract insurance managers who were previously prepared to embark on the long captive EB journey? Interesting question. I've, I have a mixed response on this. Um, I think maybe for some, yes, Richard, if they, if they haven't got the bandwidth and they're struggling on the PNC side because of the market uh, the market uh, goings on at the moment, then yes, maybe for some. However, I think my stronger view is no. And I think if companies want to look at captive use for EB, they will do it. And to get to that point, they need appropriate people to sign this off within the company. And if they have that traction, then I think you will do this, this sort of this, this transaction, this model anyhow. There is a, there is a, there's the economic prize here, yeah, that is sizable for most companies on looking at captive use but the the bigger piece is the non-economic piece and i know we're going to come on to that but um so i think if a company wants to do it they would do it okay well let's get let's get into a bit of those reasons then because former journalist uh, and a, a kind of journalist i guess doing the, doing the podcast i'm often told from service providers a really great story about a real ramp up in interest in a particular line of products cyber is a good one terrorism insurance is another one that always came up the last few years about captives but EB is one of the few where I have regularly met over the last two to three years, particularly remember the last European captive forum in Luxembourg at the uh, 2018, where I had you know a number of really large multinationals really excited about it. They're just embarking on the journey or they're one year in and you really heard some real, you know, got some meat on the bones of activity actually happening. Is there one common denominator or one common motivator, sorry, that has driven this huge uptake in the, the past five years or so in the in the captive EB companies that look at this are multinational uh, in nature they have risks around the world on the EB side spread employees everywhere most of those companies would have looked at the pension world the retirement savings world and grappled with it the next piece is EB and has been for the last five ten years so my my phrase on the, the answer to this would be getting a grip of EB. That, that is the motivation for all the companies. That is the common denominator. That is the bottom line. And getting a grip means financial efficiency, getting better at that, applying consistent risk management and risk engineering to EB programs, looking for to control, looking to mitigate costs. So that's where the focus is. So that's the common denominator. But I call it getting a grip. Yeah, so it's it's interesting because that perspective suggests that it's got to be, and this might be blindingly obvious to everyone else, but it's got to be coming from, there's an operational objective there, which is getting a grip of the EB, rather than it being, often you go to captive conferences and a lot of the conversation is from, oh, it's great for your captive because it adds diversification and and it's great because it's a a great way for you to to spread your influence in the organization. But unless there's that buy-in from the top to, and the captive might not be the solution, right? There might be other ways to get a grip of the EB. They've got to have an appetite to get a grip and then the captive solution's got to be sold to them in some way. Yeah. I mean, I've worked with companies and captives that wanted to increase their party risk, and that's the reason they did it. Yeah. And I, I still see that as a reason, but I don't see that as the driving reason now. Yeah, Companies are now doing it because they want to do it and get this grip. 
And I suppose there's, there's a number of things under this grit piece. Economically, there's a prize, but there's a big governance play here as well. Uh, and it's governance of the EB plans, do, getting more info and data on those plans, transparency of who is doing what, and the cost drivers of that. Driving the cost down, the cost of risk plus the administration piece. And then there's a whole data piece that I think is where this, play, where this is all going. Yeah, okay, well, let's talk a bit more about that then. So we hear a lot about uh, taking greater control and improving EB programs when they are backed by a captive structure. Why does the inclusion of, of the captive give the employer more control? And how does, how does it also ultimately end up benefiting uh, their own workforce? And that's another big driver. Companies are connecting this, this, this sort of approach for the, the workforce piece. So in a simple way, captive is taking on the risk, it's your risk, it's your company risk, it's your data, that gives you a bigger voice. That gives you, you control, you have a bigger voice. Um, that is the fundamental underpinning piece to why it's beneficial to HR, or more beneficial to HR, and why they're at the table here, and consequently, why, why it's better for the workforce, or improves or benefits the workforce. So let me give some examples. So 10 years ago, we talked about as one of the non-financial advantages of using a captive for EB, we said you can design what you want. You are the commercial. You're no commercial insurer. You are the insurer. We talked about it a lot 20 years ago, 10 years ago. It's only now, in the last few years, that I see companies really doing that. So they are putting in same gender benefits because they are the insurer. They are putting up benefit levels, putting in core minimums across the world. They are taking away exclusions around, linked to the, the same sector. But there are real examples, lots of them, of companies using Captive for EB. They've set it up, they've tweaked it a bit, made it run well, now they're doing innovative, and some of that stuff is around design. So that is a direct uh, benefit to HR world and the, the employee world. I'm also seeing a big drive in Companies like Bill, uh, companies like Phil, who's going to is talking as well. Companies using data better, and using the data for a number of things. One, and a lot of it's around medical, some of it's around disability, but to drive cost containment strategies, so it helps both employer and employee where there's contributions. But also looking at trend in a country, and you've heard some of the others talk about this, and making interventions. So helping HR giving them data, giving them the management information and looking at trends and looking at the levers you can pull, which I call, which is the interventions for a local business unit to make, to do, to change employee behaviours, to change claims utilisation patterns, to introduce wellbeing programmes. All that stuff is really good stuff, benefiting you and me, Richard. Well, um, next up, we are, we've got a bit more to talk to Mark about, particularly around regions. Um, but next up, we have the latest instalment of Karen's Captive Corner. Back in episode six, we heard from Amory Toll, then of Marsh. But in September this year, she joined US national brokerage Highland as its global captive solutions leader. And Karen Z caught up with Amory at the NARA conference in Chicago in October. So it was announced in September, right, that you joined Highland as a senior vice president and leader of its global captive solutions business. 
For those that aren't familiar with Highland in the captive world, what role do they play? Certainly. No, I'm very pleased to be part of the Highland team. They have been around since 1935, a long family history. Right now, the, um, the third generation is really at the leadership helm. They focus in quite a few different areas, but known for property casualty, employee benefits, and then obviously the division in which I joined to lead their global captive solutions. And they are, they are well known. They have 16 offices throughout the United States and growing. And then they are part of the worldwide broker network. So the uh, solutions position was a nice entree for myself to bring a lot of my experience into the organization and align with their brokers on delivering captive and alternative risk solutions. Um, it must have been a big decision to leave Marsh after it acquired JLT. What was it about Highland's proposition that appealed to you? Great question, and I've had this question from a lot of people in the last several weeks, and really looking at the opportunities, which I was fortunate to have quite a few in front of me, and this one appealed to me because of the privately owned aspect the dedication and investment that they wanted to make to the captive insurance industry with myself, Adam Mahalik, and uh, Don DiNardo, who recently joined, and several others that we have our sights on, um, the incredible depth that they already had with managing captives and then being able to have the support of senior management. I report directly to Richard Hyland, one of the, um, obviously, family members, Mm and the experience that they have with running a a very um, complex organization, but being able to combine it with the strategic and flexible and being nimble with the organizations and putting clients first. And that's really what attracted me to them was the privately held aspect and the way their clients are and the long-term relationships they've built with them. So looking at the captive market more broadly, are there any areas of innovation or growth that are particularly exciting for you at this moment? Uh, I think what is really appealing to me with the captive marketplace today, it is evolving and changing not only from an industry perspective overall with insurance, because of the mergers and acquisitions happening. So the number of captive consultants, captive players out there is certainly changing and there are fewer. And so it provides an opportunity to be able to differentiate yourself and provide a value proposition of putting the clients first. And then also, I think in the captive industry right now, there's a a difference right now with the captive market because of the overall insurance harder market that's happening and I know we'll talk a little bit about that but being able to leverage from the harder market and and offer more solutions for clients is always a, a good area to be promoting. So how are you seeing the hard market impact captive strategies this year? Like do you see bigger retentions? What else are you seeing? Absolutely. I think with the harder market right now it's important to have captives as a solution whether you currently have a captive and have the ability to take on a larger retention. Or if you haven't pursued a captive, it is certainly opening up the door 
to the possibility and exploration for captive to optimize your risk because we are receiving phone calls daily now with large property increases, um, liability increases, depends on your industry, but property market, we had somebody that had a 100% increase last week and looking at with the October 1 renewal. And so people are people are scrambling again, and that's always a good time for the captive market from a growth perspective, but you also still want to evaluate and look at and make sure that they have enough capital and the risk they're retaining is appropriate for their organization. Absolutely. So you're saying, you know, you'll see more or an increase of formation activity, but you guys would still like to make sure that even with the the market hardening that they're doing and making or forming a captive for the right reasons, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's spot on because they need to evaluate and understand what is their risk appetite. Mm-hmm. That's always number one, even before you go down the captive path. Right. And looking to maximize, you know, risk transfer versus risk retention. And what is that line? And it's different. You right. know, it's different for the University of California Absolutely. versus you know, AT&T or somebody else down mm-hmm. the street. And so how comfortable are you with retaining risk and how can that have an impact to your balance sheet? So do you, do you think you have a guess of, you know, how many more expecting formations you'll see with the hard market? Uh, not really. I think the industry as a whole, I yeah. think we'll probably see several hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, us personally, it will depend on obviously timing and structure for some organizations, but we do and already have it in our personal pipeline at Highland quite a few opportunities related to new formations and then even add-ons with cell structures or converting to a different type of structure that will become more meaningful for organizations whether they're insuring their own corporate risk or even potentially third-party risk. So some U.S. perspective there Mark from my understanding when we talk about the growth in multinational benefits in captives we often don't mean the US it seems that a lot of programs even when the US is a big part of the insured's operation with large employee numbers don't doesn't get included in in the in the American portion doesn't go into the captive necessarily or the global program is that correct or am I horribly wrong and and why <laughs> why you're horribly wrong or, or, uh, or, I can or, tell or. you many things <laughs> um, yes and no when I think of EB I think of US as well that so personally I, yeah it doesn't fall out from from my perspective when I have conversations with whoever it is providers clients caps doesn't um, but the reason why you're thinking it does and it's not in a lot of programs is because the US on the EB side and when we talk about captive financing and other financing methods actually but anyway to talk about captive financing it's a more complex uh, area so there are certain things you need to do. I won't go on about them. Department of Labor is involved. So there are uh, uh, federal things you need to do, and some of them are quite onerous. Um, you need to tick them off. There's a lot more trans. There's a lot more um, transparency and kind of notification. If if you want to add certain lines, the ERISA benefits, you've got to publicise that information. Put you out have information. Disclose the planned disclose. participants. You need an onshore yeah. captive. You need a benefit enhance. All sorts of things. Interestingly, I think there was a bit of a lull in this area, this sort of US benefit risk to captive, probably five years ago, six years ago. Um, there were things going on within uh, the regulatory agencies there. We're doing, I'm trying to top that up, we're doing six projects on US 
benefit risk to captive involving the Department of Labour, some of it life and risk, uh, accident, uh, retiring medical ones, so quite interesting ones. And it's quite interesting working with the legal firms and the, the Department of Labour on stuff that is changing. So, and it's literally coming through now. So there's, so there's some changes coming through, more onerous stuff coming through. So a word, of course, to anyone looking at this, be aware that it's more complex, but the environment has changed where it is doable. Mm. People thought it wasn't doable. It is doable. Um, so there's a number of things happening there. And the other piece around this, companies often split up US benefit risk, the rest of the world benefit risk, especially US companies, but some other companies do as well, just from an operations point of view and a regulatory point. Forget the captive piece and the difficulty there with the, D- the, the, the challenge with the DOL application process. There are, there are companies that actually divide their world up because, because of certain reasons, and US is part of that sometimes. Okay, well, outside uh, this growing interest, and it's one that I'm sure we're talking about a lot in the next uh, season of the Global Captive podcast in 2020, what is the uh, most exciting new development in the world of captives and employee benefits, do you think? What is genuinely exciting you in this area? I know that you're generally excited about this area anyway, Mark, but um, what, what new stuff is, uh, is, uh, is keeping you excited? This is going to be probably quite a boring answer, but I think healthcare cost management and the influence that the captive can bring to that is, I think, one of the biggest drivers now to use your captive well for EB. Um, so medical trend is nine eight eight nine 8%, 9% globally. If you look across the board, higher than that in many markets, generally lower than that in Europe. But anyway, medical trend is a big thing. And many companies, after a time period in many countries, will double their spend, say four, five, six years. They'll double their spend on all of these programs. And medical trend, we did a great survey on this, medical trend will only go up. It will not come down. Sorry, it will stay the same or, or yeah, it will go up utilization cost of technology social uh, state systems reduce all that sort of thing medical trend 10 percent. so this is why i think uh captives use for eb in particular healthcare is really important and so i'm seeing what i'm excited about is the more risk management around that yeah managing your programs running your business better getting ahead of your competitors well that's a good way to finish i think mark that just leaves me to say thank you to all of our guests this week vodafone's phil clark highlands and marie toll for braving karen's captive corner and of course you mark cook see you next time captives